You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. In this episode, we're going in-depth on accessibility and its role within design. But before we get started, a few reminders. If you'd like to get in touch with your feedback, you can reach us at mechsfeed on Twitter or by email, designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. We spend a good bit of time putting together detailed show notes to support every episode of the podcast, so do take a look. You can find them mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Also, we're counting down the days till MEX16, our next conference, where we bring together a hundred of the brightest minds in design, media, and technology, and challenge them to really think differently about how we can create better digital experiences over two days of creative sessions, talks, and networking. We'd love to see you at the event, and if you'd like to find out how you can get a ticket, take a look at mobileuserexperience.com and click on the conference section. Welcome. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of MEX, and I'm joined on the podcast today by Neil Milliken, Head of Accessibility and Inclusion at Atos. Neil, great to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So tell me, was there a defined moment when you can recall wanting to do something in digital, so to speak, uh, or was the motivation a bit different from you uh, the the road to damascus the light bulb moment for me uh, i think was round about mid 90s uh, when i i i'd not grown up digital so I, I although i'd had a amstrad green screen computer and did a bit of programming as a as a really young kid um i was too young to to actually sort of for there to be computers being ubiquitous in schools, went through university you know, handwriting stuff, and and really missed out by a, a few years on the sort of being educated in a in a digital world. But for me, when I came into the workplace and I I, I really discovered how transformative computing was, and even you know the, the things like desktop publishing, and and for me actually reminders and, and tasks and all of the sort of time management stuff that that really turned me on to computing and I, I really got into it in, in a big way to the point where I started building my own computers and hardware and everything else. Was there a particular product at that time that you remember fondly as being the one that made a bit of a breakthrough for you? Well, the internet in general being 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 a huge thing, you know, the, the fact that you could uh, discover stuff but 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 essentially yeah I'm, I'm dyslexic so actually desktop processing uh you know desktop publishing packages for me uh with spell checkers and all of this kind of stuff make a really significant difference because writing is hard uh i write i write quite well i've got i've got a, a degree in english and history from oxford but um the process is hard. The, the, the handwriting is terrible. It's, it's littered with spelling mistakes. Computers eliminated all of that. So um, for me, 
um, what seems like a really mundane thing was was really massively important. It was a, a significant moment in my life coming across this stuff because it, it, it gave me the, the, the facility to do things that I'd always struggled with. So for me, that was what really turned me on to technology and I've, I've been interested in it ever since. So let's maybe work backwards a little bit because you know today you're head of accessibility and inclusion at Atos. But what was the route in for you, careerize, um, to get into that role? What was the sort of path that you took? It was a winding one. Uh, so I, I went to university, was interested in the arts and and music. Set up my own record label, like many people selling niche vinyl. It's not the path to riches. Uh, so I went through a number of jobs and um, a lot of them were related to sort of music and media and video and so on, um, particularly around the sort of export and, and sales of this kind of stuff. And I ended up working for a dot-com company uh, for a couple of years um, before the dot-com boom and bust. Uh, unfortunately, it went bust and I ended up uh, – looking for a job and I ended up with a few weeks work for a, a company in Cambridge that, that that was interested in people to do a bit of research and this company which is called Insys, they're still going uh, specialized in tools for people with dyslexia and so dyslexia runs in the family and so it was of interest to me so I applied and I was there for nearly nine years so that's how I started. And that was really around sort of looking at assistive technology, speech recognition systems. This was around the turn of the millennium, so 2001. This is you know, a long time before speech became the ubiquitous thing that it is today. So it was really quite bleeding edge. Yeah. What was the state of the art with speech technology at that time? What, what were the capabilities then? It, well, so you, you would uh, you'd have to do significant amounts of training. So the the point that I'd got uh, when I joined, they'd got beyond discrete speech. So you didn't have to say one word at a time. So you could speak in sentences, but you'd have to spend an awful lot of time training the the computer to recognize your voice so you'd be reading large passages of alice in wonderland or bits of space odyssey to to the computer um in a sort of newsreadery type voice for quite some time to to really get it to a point where it would be around 80 to 90 percent accurate nowadays it's about 99 percent accurate and you don't really have to do anything other than sort of read a couple of sentences just while it adjusts the microphone volume. So I use, I use speech recognition uh, a lot, and it's, it's really quite accurate if you use it correctly. Uh, and also there's lots of different instances, so some are better than others. So Siri is an example that a lot of people are familiar with, but I don't think it's by any means the, the best experience that people can have. And, and the reason I say that is that partly the, that they've chosen to use a partner for search that doesn't really bring the right kind of results. Partly they've hobbled the, the, the capabilities of the system and, and partly because you're, uh, you've got lots of variables with it as well. So you've got background noise, you've got the fact that you're sending 
compressed speech data over networks, uh, over the, the telephony networks. Uh, and so there are lots of things that can sort of break that experience. Yeah, that whole area of, of speech input, I think, is really interesting at the moment, particularly in regards to how machine learning and artificial intelligence is starting to play a, a role there. I know that's something which Google, for instance, have been spending um, a fair bit of time and money on recently to apply those sort of techniques to how they're doing the recognition uh, I'm curious, I'm from uh, an accessibility perspective. Um, are there some of those voice interfaces which are better suited to different types of accessibility requirement that you would guide um, people with certain accessibility requirements, say towards Siri versus uh, using, say, the, the Google services? Um, or, or does it uh, have a different set of variables around it? I think that if you're going to really want to use speech recognition heavily, you're probably best off using a PC and uh, and, and still the standout package is, is, is Nuance's Dragon software, which is the most accurate. Uh, obviously, the the issue is, you know, we can't always be sat at a desk or sat at a laptop. So, so context always plays a role, um, and, and context is... is you know, plays a role in every usability um, design and, and design decision when you're choosing technologies and, and, and how people will interact. But, but particularly with, with speech recognition, if you're really dependent on it then uh, and you really need accuracy, then, then Dragon is still the best and it, and it enables you to create a whole bunch of other things as well. So it integrates well with, with common packages. You can create macros and, and so on to make it work with other things so it's a really pretty powerful tool and it's and it's really pretty accurate i used it actually for all of my masters all of my thesis and all of, all of my written work but i even dictated all of my exams so um one one learning point from that though is of course if if you're dictating your answers and and you turn to your invigilator and ask how much time you've got left uh, make sure you turn the microphone off because <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd actually but all these things you wouldn't otherwise know yeah yeah I'd, I'd highlighted one of my answers and I overtyped it with how much time have I got left and then I overtyped it with my swearing <laughs> <laughs> well that must have been quite an interesting paper to mark at the end I guess uh, well luckily you know after after sort of taking a few seconds to breathe you know you can remember control Z and you're fine but uh yeah, it's, it's it's definitely something that I'm mindful of, and 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 um, and and yes, it's 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 a little it's a little funny, but it, but equally, um, if you're really reliant on on some of these tools, you, you know, they are slightly fragile. They're they're becoming more and more robust. But one of the things that I've seen over the the sort of 15 years that I've been working in these technologies is that that um, people adopt them really early if you've got people with disabilities they're prepared to put up with the fragility and the, the the bugs in the systems for the utility that these new tools and technologies offer them so one of the things that i really try and get across in order to persuade companies to engage on uh, with accessibility is the fact that you've got a really ready-made group of early adopting beta testers that are going to really give your product a good run-through um, because they're not going to abandon it at the first failure. 
So if, if you really want to, to work with people that are going to really give you in-depth insight into what your product does and how it works and, and how it works for them, then you know, work with people who have different needs because quite often what you find from doing sort of quick and dirty user tests is people will abandon stuff because it's not not brilliant. If you want those insights on how you can develop your technology further, then I would say really engage with the accessibility community because you'll get some really deep insights. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting uh, way of, of looking at it. Something I'd like to come back to actually a bit uh, later on because um, that whole idea of how um, it might influence the, the way you engage in the user research process, I think, is a, an area that um, we could probably go into some depth on. But just before we do that, um, let's examine this word accessibility a bit, because I think this can mean quite different things for different people. Uh, and in some ways, it's almost become a branch of design in itself. Um, but I was thinking you know, in advance of the podcast, you know, a little bit about the etymology of the word and the sense that you know, the opposite of accessible um, well, is is inaccessible, which really doesn't make any sense at all for any form of design. Um, but what does it mean to you, you know, when you use that word accessible and when you have it in uh, you know, your job title, for instance, what's the scope of that for you? Well, for me, accessibility is really broad. But but first off, you're right, there's a duality of meaning with it, or, or more, more than duality of meaning with accessibility. And, and, and of course, I work for an IT company that offers cloud services. And, and, and so we, we've got to be clear, accessibility is not related in this particular context. It's not connectivity. It's not, it's not server uptime here we're talking about. It's the ability for someone to use your product that has a a disability or a different need so it's about the interoperability with assistive technologies or or, or or using the inbuilt tools in the operating system so not breaking the experience for someone that that needs to access that information or, or use information uh, and, and come to it through a slightly different way than than you would expect most users and I, when I say most users, it, it's, it's not a small subset of people here. So if you take the overall estimation from the World Health Organization, there are a billion people in the world with a disability. Now, we're not a homogenous group. Uh, my needs as, uh, as a person that's dyslexic are not the same as the needs of some of my customers who are blind. Uh, for, for me... I like rich pictorial things, uh, less in the way of words, and that's pretty much diametrically opposed to what the needs of, of a lot of uh, my screen reader using customers require. So, so, um, so accessibility is, is, is really about the art of making stuff usable for people in different modalities. Um, and, I, in many ways, prefer the idea of talking about inclusive design or inclusive user experiences. And at us, we talk about IUX, which is inclusive user experience, because we try and put together the, the core concepts of accessibility um, as defined by the W3C, uh, which are perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust, and put them with, with the, the the key concepts around usability because it's not just about making stuff work with uh, assistive tech tools. Lots of people that have 
disabilities and accessibility needs are on a spectrum again. So uh, if you think about it, populations are, are aging rapidly. People tend to acquire disabilities or, or if uh, issues with sight, hearing, uh, mobility, um, dexterity, etc. As, as we get older, most people do. Um, so there's this whole sort of spectrum of differing abilities that we, that we need to be catering for. So I, I think that, um, yes, at one end, you've got the make it work with assistive tech stuff. But, but um, at the other end, you've got the let's make it work for everyone and make it as easy as possible. Because actually, when you start talking about uh, as as easy as possible, and you're you're talking about the the sort of usability uh, criteria of being sort of supportive, efficient, satisfying, and effective, then you. you, you you're capturing and making stuff better for a, for a very wide audience. Yeah, I mean, that uh, is one of the things which has always struck me about this area is that as soon as you scratch even slightly below that uh, initial surface, that accessibility is something which correlates um, with disability, uh, you start to understand that actually, um, as you say, this is very much a, a broad area and that good design inherently is inclusive design uh, and vice versa, which I suppose it brings us right back to that earlier question about the importance of user research here. Um, and from how you've described it so far, it would seem to me that um, that must be a really essential part uh, of this for you today as you um, you practice your role uh, with Atos, you know, understanding in some depth the diverse needs of all the people on those various spectrums uh, of inclusion and uh, the need to provide design which is relevant uh, to all of the different constituents. Um, So you mentioned previously about the level of engagement that you see um, with people who uh, are conscious that they have um, some kind of particular accessibility requirement. How does that influence the user research process for you? How do you, um, you know, make that into a, um, a mutually beneficial relationship, if you like, where you can tap into that additional enthusiasm that's there to ensure that these products reflect the needs uh, of the people who want to use them? Okay, so well, there's there's several different ways. So obviously, working as I do now for a, a, a very large IT company, we get involved in a huge range of projects, and the approaches may be very very different depending on on, on the project. So um, previously, I, I was actually working on mobile development, and we were developing mobile tools, and, and there. It was really quite clear, you know. You go to the user base that you're, whose problem you, you hope to be addressing. So obviously, um, you need to define the problem first. What what is it that you're trying to solve? I mean, a lot of people take a technology and, and then try and find a problem. I believe that you should be, when you're when you're building something or designing something, you should be trying to solve a problem or an issue. Uh, and, and so once you define the problem or the issue that you're trying to solve, you then go and and, and, and talk to people and, and maybe redefine that problem because it may be that you're 
assumptions about that problem are wrong, but you need to talk to, to people and, and, and users and, and talk to them about what it is that they feel that they need and what it is that they feel that they're finding difficult. And, and then you can, you, can, you can take that and start working out what it is that you need to fit around it in terms of how you design your technology and, and, and what it is you're, you're going to deliver. In other circumstances, uh, because my role's really varied now that I'm, I'm you know, we're a multinational outsourcer, we do everything from delivering the IT for the Olympics to, you know, delivering managed services for government departments and the BBC, etc. So um, in those cases, a lot of the stuff is around governance. It's around, uh, to a certain extent, we've determined what, you know, the user needs and requirements are within certain parameters. We've got personas that we've developed for certain different sets of needs uh, and defined tool sets. So, so in, in those circumstances, it's it's sort of the 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 sort of upfront user research is less because we've we've already got defined parameters and, and, and people get involved later in the testing cycle, but always um, once you've done your technical uh, testing to make sure it works as designed, then we're, we're doing testing with users with accessibility needs. You've also been doing this for quite a number of years now, but do you still find yourself surprised sometimes by the results that come out of that user research process? Mm-hmm. So I learn something new every day. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I'm quite clear is that whatever you plan and whatever you design, you can be sure that people are going to use your product in a way that you didn't anticipate. Uh, and people are going to find utilities for stuff that, that you you hadn't imagined. And, and this is particularly the case for people with disabilities because they're, they're some of the best life hackers you'll come across because from the, the the issues that they face around inaccessibility it means that that people are forced to innovate and they find all kinds of interesting ways of of, of being able to operate and, and and achieve stuff and um that's what keeps me interested to, to a large extent i mean there's i'm i'm constantly learning there's never a day when i don't learn something new. There seems to be a real power and, and value to that. I mean, not just in this area of uh, accessibility and inclusion, but it's something that we've seen throughout the MEX community around that notion that as soon as you introduce constraint of any kind, you really start to tap into that power of necessity being the mother of invention. And it's amazing you know, what people are able to create and the sort of creativity that is unleashed from that process. Uh, are there any particular examples that you've come across recently where you've seen that sort of power uh, in action and, and, and innovation coming out of the sort of communities that you work with? I'm going to spin it around slightly and, and, and say that um, if you look at, I, I, I talk about situational disability. So, so this is the idea that um, whilst you have groups of people that, that have disabilities and live with disabilities on a permanent or semi-permanent basis, there are times and moments within our daily lives where all of us are unable to do stuff. So we're all constrained. So for example, 
if you're driving, you are no longer able to use your hands to operate your smartphone. That's a situational disability. You get around it by using voice input and, and voice feedback. You can't. You also cannot look at your screen particularly much because you've got to keep your eyes on the road. So then you're starting to see the crossover between the assistive technologies uh, and day-to-day -day usage. And, and we're particularly seeing a lot of that around speech right now. Uh, it's been a long time coming. You know? um, I've, I've, as I said to you at the beginning, I've been using speech technologies for 15 years. It's taken a long time for it to mature. I think partly because the hype was really significant at the beginning and people's experience of the, uh, of the actual usage of the technology didn't live up to the hype. So I don't know if you're familiar with Gartner's hype cycle. But um, speech recognition spent an awful lot of uh, time in the trough of disillusionment, <laughs> and it's now it's now really a pretty mature product and and on the plateau of productivity as they define it. So it's being utilised at sort of pretty much ubiquity, you know, uh, ubiquitously from cinema bookings to. Um, being built into your operating systems. That's a, a really good point, I think. And it's something that we've seen historically in mobile experience design in particular. Yeah, how you get those um, additional knock-on effects from investments that are made initially on the basis of uh, fulfilling accessibility responsibilities uh, and actually the technology uh, or the experience design methods which come out of that then go on to have an outsize effect across a much wider group of, of people, as you say, who might be affected by things like situational disabilities uh, or, or other areas where you can end up having an impact with those same technologies. Um, but the, the point you make about the, the hype cycle is kind of an interesting one there and how uh, you continue the investment through uh, those troughs, be it a single sustained trough or one where uh, there are several troughs along the way towards getting this kind of thing deployed. Is that something where regulation plays a significant part in it? I mean, you made that point earlier uh, about um, how there are um, regulatory requirements um, for certain providers of, of services um, around how they address this. I mean, how important is that to ensuring that the investment in these technologies is sustained so that they can get through any of those troughs to the point where they do become uh, useful to, to a, a wide audience? So I think that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. So I think that there's a lot of regulation out there that mandates that you must be accessible, but there's very little support for the development of new assistive technologies. So um, if you look at the, the EU sort of future-facing research projects that are out there right now under the Horizon 2020 grant funding scheme, out of the many, many millions available for all sorts of projects, only two millions available for research into assistive technologies. And yet, it, uh, the aging populations are such a significant part of the, it's a mega trend effectively, by um, 2060, a century on from the point in 1960 where there were three youngsters for every elderly person, there's likely to be two elderly people for each young person. So the the need for this is pressing, and yet we're, we're not really investing in it. We're legislating for it, 
So, um, for example, there's EU accessibility legislation and there's an EU Accessibility Act coming into force uh, fairly soon, which will actually include mobile apps. Uh, but we're, what we're not really doing is investing in the companies that, that might bring us some of that great innovation going forwards that might bring us those benefits or we're not doing it explicitly under the banner of accessibility i think we're we're investing in things like artificial intelligence deep learning and all of these things and actually the application of these technologies is tremendously exciting uh, and has massive implications for overall accessibility but what we're not doing is explicitly funding some of this stuff through through the difficult times so it's quite it's if you want to sort of go in and, and start up your new sort of revolutionary uh, technology that you think is going to help people you, you're going to have to go out there and get funding from venture capitals or angels rather than from grant grant funding i think how could we make that better i mean you mentioned earlier about uh, the sort of groundswell of momentum that comes from the community involvement around this and i know that uh, you also run a number of um, uh, initiatives uh, as well in this area like the access chat uh, community initiative what's the role of, of those sort of things in um, ensuring that uh, we can really focus on as you say what is you know really a big macro problem that is being stored up for the future if we don't address this better? Well, I, I think that the community is a key to it, actually, because um, what we've tended to do is, like, like, like many businesses do, is, is, is operate in silos. And that has not helped us. And I think that, that we're going through a, a sea change in how everyone works right now. Um, and that and, and in how and, and new technologies, social technologies have changed how people interact. So we're going from a period of being closed, uh, secretive and, and controlling. And I'm quoting a chap called Thomas Power here into what we hope will be open, random and sort of supportive. So so the idea is that you're open to ideas, you, you know, you're open to where they're coming from. Doesn't really need to um, necessarily, you know, necessarily be your area or your ownership, and that you should be able to um, work with people. Uh, and and I think that this is this is really something that excites me, uh, and it's something that definitely ties in with what I was seeing as some of the sort of social movements that are happening around accessibility and disability i think that we're a long way behind say the lbgt community when it comes to really having effectively come together and, and addressed our case so one of the things that i think is happening now uh, and, and certainly we're seeing it with uh, initiatives like access chat and i'll cover that a bit more in a minute um is that we are trying to avoid the single disability silos and actually talk about inclusion and community and build communities and have a collective voice. Um, and some of that means that we're also, you know, we're also following the same innovation paths as a, you know, a lot of the tech community in that we are bootstrapping ourselves 
into into growth. Now, how's that manifesting with uh, something like your Access Chat initiative? Because we were talking a little bit about this off air before, and it sounds like you're doing some very interesting things there around exactly that to, to bring the community together and to use some of those uh, new ways of working, if you like, to uh, to give the, the community a, a sort of gathering point. Uh, so, well, so Access Chat is 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 a combination of things it started by myself uh, a colleague of mine and uh, a, a lady called deborah rue who's an accessibility and also sort of marketing consultant out in the united states and this is something that we all do in our spare time and what it what it is it's a combination of video interviews with people that we find interesting that are doing something in the area of inclusion uh, followed up by a weekly twitter chat and and it's a uh, six questions in the space of an hour and it's it's pretty structured and it's on the ha- hashtag access chat a x s c h a t and it's exceeded our wildest expectations really we've been doing it for nearly two years and we've learned an awful lot the community's grown and since we started actually using analytics software around the, the social media in about march last year we've had our hashtags sort of filter out over the internet over a billion times. So, so that's a really powerful thing. And people are coming together and projects are forming out of conversations that have been had online and, and people are meeting and, and, and this is a truly international community. We've got people from every single time zone uh, participating. And, and and it's it's a really wide range of people that we're also bringing in. So one week we had the the head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. The next week we had uh, a chap called Kurt Yeager, who's a, an actor in Sons of Anarchy and NCIS, who's a below the knee amputee. So uh, we are manifestly trying to avoid being overly technical because we want to build the broadest kind of community. Yes, we'll, we'll touch on technical issues, and, and yes, I can be quite technical, and I, li- I like to get as geeky as the next one, but, but equally, we're, we're a broad church, uh, and, and we're quite happy for people to go off and, and do the, the, the sort of smaller stuff, but we, we're really trying to create a movement here so that the voices can be heard. And we want to give not just the leaders the voices, but the ev- everyone a voice. So one of the, the key things that we do to facilitate that is make sure that everyone, we, the way that we, we structure our questions is we make sure that they can be answered pretty much by everyone. So whilst they relate back to the interview, the, the video interview with uh, with our guests, we try and structure them in such a way that that everyone can participate. And if you you know you have hundreds of participants at any one time, that really stimulates discussion. And it also means there's an awful lot of tweets. So uh, it's it's uh, for someone like me with uh, with dyslexia, it really does add to your cognitive load. But but so that so that's what we're doing, and 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 as a result of that, we've been involved in in a number of other things. So we've we've been invited to uh, be the partner for the International Paralympic Committee for their inclusion summit, uh, and we've been working with some stuff on the with the United Nations, and uh, there's more to come. But as you can see, this this whole way of working is is you know, massively distributed. No one, no one's um, you know sat in. You know, we're not all co-located in an office. We're all in different time zones. Everything's done with 
uh, free SaaS tools. You know, we're using Skype and and, and Google Hangouts and Word, you know WordPress hosting the website and um, YouTube for, for for the videos. Uh, we do have to use some paid for tools you know, in, uh, for captioning and stuff like that because although uh, YouTube can auto caption they're not quite up to speed yet in terms of accuracy but but so that so that's what we're doing and and what we're seeing is that that from that example we're able to to help other people create other similar things and initiatives uh, and create a groundswell so we we think that there's a really good case that the, the technology is enabling uh, a movement to, to begin and to a certain extent because people with disabilities may not have the mobility may not have the money and everything else the the ability to do this online is even more important for this group of people than than for other minority groups or excluded groups what a wonderful uh, initiative and um, i'll make sure we put links in the show notes uh, so that listeners can go and check that out i've been having a look at it myself today uh, and there's a real breadth as you say of different interviews there and ideas and insights uh, and as you say that the, the feeling of a, a community um really coming to together around this uh, now what for you um has been you know, the the most um effective initiative that's come off the back of that breadth of inclusion because i i think that's a really important point with this and something we've actually talked about a little bit in previous episodes of this podcast is that power of embracing things which uh, often can seem just tangentially related to the specific area that you're working in but then end up going on to become um, important initiatives in their own right and, and contribute something back to a, a specific objective um, have you found that there are any particular things which have come out of what you're doing with access chat uh, where you've been able to tap into that power of having uh, the inclusive approach and, and involve people who wouldn't normally perhaps identify themselves with this area uh, and getting their input absolutely so um, and on a number of different fronts so for for example uh, we were able to use access chat as a, a case study to take back into to my own business and say look this is the power of what you can do with social media we you know uh, and as a result of that, we're we're running a bunch of different social initiatives within our own organisation, which um, which you know we we learnt to use social analytics tools. We you know uh, we we can see how things are connecting, see patterns, and all of this kind of stuff. So that has huge business value, and 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 obviously our our company recognises that, and and that's something that that that's sort of happens tangentially out of it so 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 for us that was that was fantastic um other other things that are happening are, are that that we're using it to bring organizations together and i and i work i do another a, a, a number of things outside of my day job which are sort of tangentially related as well so i contribute to the w3c um for the web content accessibility guidelines particularly around cognitive accessibility so uh dyslexia um adhd autistic spectrum dementia related issues um which are really interesting and quite fuzzy problems 
in that they're not cut and dried in the same way. Uh, so some of the stuff that we're we're doing with with the conversations on access chat are feeding back into to the stuff that we're doing for the W3C and vice versa. So I, I take a fairly messy, holistic approach to everything. I believe I believe uh, uh, in in systems. I, I don't I don't believe in sort of discrete things. I think that everything's kind of interlinked somehow. And that, uh, you know, maybe maybe. And if you look at my diary and my inbox, you'd say that I'm I'm living chaos theory. But um, but I do believe that everything's interconnected in some way. So I I I, I try and keep everything moving, even if it is juggling plates absolutely yeah i think if there's one thing we've learned over the years of doing the mex initiative uh, it's that the path to good design is rarely a straight and simple one it's something which is inherently messy and fuzzy and that you have to embrace that if you're going to make progress uh, and i guess the other the other bits um are that it's bringing businesses together and i think that that there's an interesting area around um, how we can work with re- really large organizations, and I'm talking multi-billion dollar organizations here, to actually bring about a positive change for the user experience of people um, and also a positive change for accessibility. So I'm, I'm a member of the Business Disability Forum's Technology Task Force and uh, and their international arm as well. And, and what we're doing is a number of initiatives, one of which is around procurement. And that is where we are effectively coming together and, and taking a we the undersigned approach, where we're saying, well, you know, together, we all want this stuff. And we're approaching some of the world's largest software vendors and saying, well, we know that your stuff doesn't work right now. We've all asked you individually, and we've all not really got satisfactory answers. But we're not here to beat you up. We're here to have a positive conversation about how we can talk about your future roadmap and your future products and what what it is that we can do to work with you. Again, this this whole sort of concept of collaboration rather than conflict and and, and a sort of a one-way transaction. To, to work to make these products better because we are your market and your market's telling you that this is something that the market demands so you need to be listening and and, and that's actually proving to be quite successful and this change doesn't happen quickly but it is significant change because these these are huge organizations that you know, that are, put together the kind of stuff that will make you cry when you use it. So I'm talking about all of these sort of enterprise IT systems for, you know, employee self-service and databases and all of the kind of things that the average uh, employee is subjected to on a, on a daily basis that have a a user interface like it's from the early 1990s and is designed by database schema rather than with user needs in in mind. How's that evolved on the client side over your years in this area professionally? Because I'm guessing that, you know, given that you've been involved in this area for some time now, you've probably seen a bit of change uh, 
over that period in how, if you like, on the among client businesses like that who might be, say, developing a piece of enterprise software um, or you know some other service which is deployed on the mass scale, how they approach that question of accessibility and inclusion and what it means to them and how they then engage uh, you know, with organizations like Atos, for instance, that deliver that or other partners that can help them with that question. Uh, how, how has that evolved for you? Have you noticed much change in this time? I think change has been slow. But it's, it is accelerating right now. And I think that, that I'm, I am actually quite positive about what the future holds. So um, what, what we used to see was really uh, people coming and, and, and dealing with accessibility as an afterthought. Here's our product. We're finished. Now test it. Oh, and then you find it doesn't work. Or there are people that are excluded. And, and of course, in the United States, that's, that means lawsuits and all of this kind of stuff and it's never never good it's not good for the reputations of the company but also if you're trying to retrofit accessibility or even any other interoperability features it's always going to impact on your project you know time scales the cost of the project and also in terms of the you know satisfaction for the customers uh, the maintenance costs and everything else so what we're trying to do is really get much much earlier in the in the process and get that into the mindsets of, of individuals and companies and and so whilst i started off doing technical stuff i spend most of my days now evangelizing because and, and trying to build skills in other people because you, you're effectively boiling the ocean all the time so um what I'm seeing is more people willing to learn the skills. Uh, I'm seeing more companies coming to the table saying, actually, this is something that we recognize is important. Uh, and more initiatives from the tech industry at applying the bleeding edge tech to solve real serious accessibility problems. And, and to give you an example, I think that that deep learning and artificial intelligence have a really big role to play when it comes to solving the accessibility problems of user-generated content. So whilst you can go to a big company or, or, or you know, an organization like the BBC and say, you know, your, you know, your stuff must be accessible and you know, they do a really good job of it you know, because they're, they're public sector broadcasters, they have to. Your average Joe who's posting stuff up on Facebook's not going to put alt text on, uh, you know, text description on their images or, or um, decide that they want to caption their videos or, or even give audio description for, for videos. You know, that's, that's time consuming. Uh, or if you want to pay for it, even, you know, even if you're a small company, the costs can be quite significant. Uh, so we've got to find better ways of, of, of dealing with all of this stuff. And I think that the, the new technologies like artif you know, artificial intelligence, image recognition, uh, automatic speech recognition, all of these kind of things are, they're not mature yet, but they hold out, I, I hold out great hopes that, that they're going to help solve these problems because the, the rate at which content is being created is accelerating far faster than 
the the few trained individuals that know about accessibility could ever cope with it. What would be top of your list at the moment? You know, if you could accelerate uh, the role of machine learning and artificial intelligence in relation to solving um, any of those, those problems that you have mentioned, what would be the the highest priority? Do you think where could you make the biggest difference at the moment? Oh, I think there's probably two or three two or three areas that that, that are, are good high priorities. So. If, if you're blind, you, you need images to be described. As the web becomes more visual and more interactive, media like Twitter have actually become less accessible over time. So Twitter started off as a text-only medium, hugely accessible. That's why there are so many people who are blind on Twitter. Um, but over the years, people have started to add images and, and find their way around certain things. So, for example, the constraints of 140 characters. So what uh, what do people do if they want to post a large piece of text? They post a picture of text. Of course, if you're blind, you can't read that. So um, the ability to add image descriptions solves that problem. Um, but doing it via artificial intelligence or, or, or machine learning would be better because, obviously, I individually add image descriptions to, to my tweets that's me um, and, and, and I'm not the average user and also my audience is such that you know I've got a lot of people who are interested in accessibility and users of assistive tech woe betide me if I if I don't do it but but effectively so the automating that would be a really big thing for uh, people who are blind and, and, and then also captioning now captioning has Again, huge fringe benefits, but, but because at the moment the, there's an awful lot of video content out there that is not captioned. You can upload stuff to, uh, to YouTube, and it does a, a it, it has an attempt at it. At the moment, it's not accurate enough. If if you can hear and you're listening along, you can you can see the the difference in the words, and you and, and you can you can work out what's going on. Obviously, if you have no hearing or the volume's off, then you're not really going to get a sense of what's happening. That said, the technology is improving really rapidly, and I think that this has this has significant benefits because if we go back to the sort of fringe benefits, who uses captioning? Okay, there are people who are deaf or hard of hearing, but there's also people in noisy environments. If you're sat in a sports bar, for example, uh, the captions will be on, or if you're sat on a you know on a train or in an office where you can't you know, have headphones on for whatever reason. Or it's late at night. There's there's lots and lots of other reasons. Plus, captions help for people with learning difficulties. So it helps reinforce what's being said. Uh, they're useful for people who are um, not native speakers of a language. So again, it helps enforce the, the the understanding of what's going on. So there's real, real significant benefits for uh, working on on these tools. And then, of course. The sort of speech and cognitive interfaces, they're the, they're the ones that excite me because they're meeting my needs. So, uh, sort of personal digital assistants, you know, uh, really something like Cortana, it holds promise. Siri holds promise. They're not there yet. They're, you know, the natural language interfaces, really, really exciting. You know, being able to talk to my computer and asking it to do stuff and it, it work out what I've said and, and, and come back and deliver. Uh, answers and, and carry out commands 
tremendously exciting. Um, so those those are the areas that I, I see holding huge promise and utility beyond just the the sort of immediate accessibility community. Yeah, I'd very much agree. I mean, this is actually a topic around artificial intelligence and machine learning that we've addressed a few times in uh, previous podcasts. We had a, a guest on Nathan Benesh, who uh, is a partner at Playfair Capital, a venture capital firm, which um, is specializing in investing specifically in companies which are working uh, on artificial intelligence or the application of artificial intelligence. And it really does feel like uh, an area which is accelerating at the moment. And uh, particularly in terms of being able to achieve that consistency of user experience at scale for situations where, for whatever reason, there is a suboptimal experience currently, either, as you say, because someone, for instance, hasn't taken the time to uh, describe imagery within uh, a web page, uh, or they've not been able to, to put the captioning in place. It has a real potential and power there, I think, to fill in some of those gaps uh, and to make sure that that um, level of good experience becomes more consistent and and more broadly available. Uh, And at at the moment, it sort of feels like... um, Companies, particularly those who are operating some of the largest digital ecosystems like the Googles and Microsofts of this world, um, have been putting in the groundwork to put the architectures in place. And now gradually those architectures are improving in their capability and are starting to be able to roll out on a a wider scale. So Google has started applying some of these things in the way that it does search. And then it started to deliver them in some quite specific areas around its new photo service, for instance, where they're using machine learning in the background and that gradually we're starting to see uh, that scalable capability applied across the full range of services in the digital ecosystem. And it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point because i think as it becomes broader uh, the learning capability becomes greater and the accuracy improves and things accelerate more rapidly so hopefully your your wishes in that area won't be um too long in coming no no i'm, I'm actually quite confident i and like you i believe in the network effects that that will come from from scale so the the fact that that um, Facebook and Google are, are, are actively involved in this, that you know, Microsoft are publishing APIs for people to plug into their own products to, that can, can recognize things in images as well, is really encouraging because it's, and, and I guess that's one of the other areas where I, I see um, real potential is in APIs because I guess one of the challenges that, that we have with accessibility is that it's it's sort of seen as niche and difficult, well, but really it's analogous to sort of the whole problem that industry faces with bring your own device. How do you present information to people or make it available to people who want to consume it on something that you may not know about or do not understand? So it's it's a question of of, of trying to find ways to enable people to consume that information. I think APIs have tremendous potential for allowing people to APAs and connectors have tremendous potential for allowing people to to have that sort of flexibility to be accessible so you may not your main product may not be accessible but you may have an API that enables uh, an app to access the the information in the same way um, or in the way that suits it suits individuals 
So I think that's that's also an area where I'm I'm particularly interested right now. Well, I think you've highlighted one of the macro challenges, which is affecting really all aspects of experience design. Um, this idea that it, we're getting to a point where uh, the ubiquity of digital experience is such that it's long ago become impossible to anticipate every permutation of how these digital experiences might be consumed by different users. Uh, and you start to have to think about, well, how do you make something inherently neighborly as a digital element, which might be in connected, interconnected with all sorts of other digital elements within an overall sort of multi-touch point experience. And at one level, that can be something relatively benign, like thinking about, well, if you have a smartwatch from a certain company, how do you ensure that that smartwatch behaves well with every permutation of smart TV or tablet that it might be paired with? Um, but in all kinds of different uh, scenarios, I think you're going to face variations on that challenge uh, that people are going to be mashing up all of these different services and digital capabilities and all sorts of uh, ways that you just can't really anticipate. Uh, and from a design perspective, I guess it means embedding that culture of modularity uh, and neighborliness in your products from the outset. Uh, so that whether that means offering an open API or whether that means offering physical characteristics, which make things um, more complementary to the, the other ideas items that they might encounter in users' lives. It feels like a cultural aspect of design, which is just becoming so much more important uh, as digital becomes um, fundamental to, to so many different designed objects. Yeah, I, I, I really like your, your concept of neighborly. It's not one that I've, I've used before, I, but I like it very much because we, you know, we do need to be good digital citizens and neighborliness is part of that. What do you think this means for skills for practitioners working in this area uh, and the mex community is is really quite diverse i mean people listening to this podcast you know, might range from uh, the ceo's design agencies to people who are the heads of design at some of the, the world's biggest companies um uh, but also you know, people who are newly graduated and just about to start out on a career in design what would you say to um, yeah, particularly those who are just starting out on this path into being designers in terms of the sort of skills that they need to be concentrating on to ensure that they can design in that neighborly, inclusive, accessible way, regardless of which particular industry they end up applying those skills in? I think actually a mindset of being open is more important than, than the skills because the skills are going to change. Well, one of the things that is, is, is entirely clear is that, that technological change is accelerating. So the skills that you have today, uh, whilst you may have some transferable skills, if you, you, if you have skills in a particular technology stack, that's going to be obsolete fairly quickly. So it's really about the open-mindedness, the, the, the curiosity and the, the, the ability to think about and consult with people about what their needs are, understanding their problems and some of the, the sort of challenge, you know, the, the, the challenge mentality. How do you deal with the challenges? How do you genuinely want to make lives, lives better and, and easier for people? It, we've, we're, we're in, in a society where technology, whilst it has purported to make things easier, has actually loaded us up. 
know, people are busier now than they, they ever were before. They, you know, you've got notification overload. Um, I think there's a, as an example of, of, of the kind of thing that we're subjected to every time we go online or, or, or touch our mobile phone, there's a, a great website by Brad Frost that's called Death to Bullshit. Uh, and, um, and, and basically it's just full of notifications and overloads and trying to sign you up to all kinds of stuff um, it, it's jokey but but it, it's making a point we're we're overloading ourselves so anything that that, you know, that we can do to to simplify stuff uh, is, is really important and I think that the key to really uh, good design is working out what to leave out um, and and how to to, to do, do the complexity on the back end. Yeah. Our, our, our role, whether it be as UX designers, accessibility people, is to remove as many hurdles as possible to, to um, someone being able to do something in a you know, satisfying way. You could make something technically accessible, um, and frequently we see this in, in enterprise IT, where we've got very complex and rigid structures in legacy IT where we've managed to budget so that uh, that you can use assistive technology with it, but it's not really usable. You, you know, you get, you're putting someone through so many steps in order to achieve something that it's really not an equal experience to that of a, of a, of a user that wouldn't use assistive tech. That said, actually, to be fair, uh, a lot of enterprise IT is uh, the sort of last bastion of user-hostile computing environments we're seeing a move to to consumerization of enterprise it but you've still got a lot of legacy tech out there that that's really um designing around the sort of function that it delivers so and and some of that is down to people's purchasing mentality so if we're if i'm talking to the the guys in the sea level here if you're um if you're making that purchasing decision you know consult the people within the business that are going to be using this because what we see is actually there's a disconnect between the people that have got a list of specifications and they go out and buy and they see see a product and they go tick 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 um, and, and the people that are going to be using the product uh, and I think that that kind of disconnect creates enormous pain for organizations as they try and adopt new technologies because people try and cling on to what they already know rather than than, than adopt something that's causing them a, a lot of stress trying to learn new things so so it's, it's removing the friction again well it's been great to hear about the kind of initiatives that you're bringing into the world of, of it and the, the community initiatives that uh, you've been undertaking as well fascinating for me personally too to, to learn more about this area which is something we've uh, touched on in several permutations in in previous uh, parts of the mex initiative but it feels like we've been able to go into a lot more detail on it today which has been great so thank you very much indeed for taking the time neil and um yeah i look forward to uh trying to get you more involved in the the community in the future um are there any places you can remind people of where they can connect with you uh to keep the conversation going um you mentioned access chat before what's the best way to, to connect with that so there is a website which is www.axschat.com it's also a twitter account at axs chat there's the hashtag which is the same so 
uh, fairly consistent there. Um, and then there's myself. I'm on Twitter as myself. So I'm at Neil Millican. And uh, if you tweet at me, I will respond. Just one last thing I wanted to say um, around the training is we actually start in an academy scheme for apprentices, So um, which I forgot to mention. And I will get killed by my um, my academy graduates um, because they've all just finished their apprenticeship. So um, it's really important for people to try and bring in fresh new skills. Splendid. I'll make sure we put links in the show notes so that our listeners can find those easily. And uh, it's been great to have the chance to chat. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this edition of Mex Design Talk. Do please get in touch with your feedback at MexFeed on Twitter or by email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Don't forget the show notes, which you can find in the podcast section at mobileuserexperience.com and check out the details of Mex16, our upcoming conference in London. You'll find that in the conference section at mobileuserexperience.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.